Uh, please keep that passage open in front of you. Uh, follow along as we work through it together. How about we pray and we ask for God's help as we do that. Our gracious Father, you say that your word is living and active, uh, that it is sharper than a double-edged sword, that it pierces to our very hearts. And so we pray that you would do what you say your word does this morning, that you'd uh, convict us of sin, that you'd point us to the Lord Jesus, and that you'd help us to trust in him and live lives that are obedient to him for his glory. And we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, Well, congratulations, everyone. Uh, You have just been accepted into the the newly formed Eastgate Mission Agency for missionary service in an undisclosed location. Uh, I can't tell you where it is because the location is that sensitive. But needless to say, the country to which you are going is not a friendly place for followers of Jesus. You've had to wipe out every trace of yourself from the internet before you leave so that government, government officials in your destination don't find out that you are a missionary. Uh, you've sorted your passports, you've packed your bags, uh, put all your belongings into storage, kissed your family goodbye. Uh, potentially, this is the last time that you will ever see them. And now you're sitting on the plane en route to your mission field. And my question for you, as you sit on the plane with with time to think uh, and you start to plan is, what is your mission strategy when you hit the ground? What's your mission strategy? How are you going to reach these people that are so hostile to the good news of Jesus with the message of the gospel? What's your mission strategy? Whatever it is you come up with, my guess is that it doesn't look anything like Jonah's strategy here in chapter 3. I think that's a pretty safe bet. As we've read through Jonah, we've seen that we've got an unpromising audience. Uh, The Ninevites are a people known for their wickedness and their violence. We have an unpromising prophet. Uh, Jonah is so opposed to God's message of mercy that the first time he's told to go to Nineveh, he goes in exactly the opposite direction. And we have an unpromising message. The message that Jonah takes to Nineveh is an abrupt, bare-bones message with exactly one point. Judgment is coming. I doubt there's been many beach missions run with that as the theme. But despite this unpromising strategy, Jonah's mission is remarkably and surprisingly successful. And if you're hesitant or reluctant to talk about Jesus, then it is an incredible encouragement to us that God loves to show mercy. And he will use even disobedient prophets like Jonah and reluctant evangelists like you and me to save the people that we would least expect. This chapter is full of surprises. We're going to work through them one by one. And so keep your eyes on that passage in front of you. The first surprise uh, is Jonah's message. Jonah has 
a surprising message. In verse 1, we're hit with a sense of deja vu. Uh, It's like God tries turning Jonah off and on again. Uh, God taps the reset button on his mission and his word comes to Jonah in exactly the same command that he was given in chapter 1. You see there in verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Uh, We don't get told how soon after Jonah's first nautical adventure God speaks to him again. Uh, It could be that Jonah's still sitting on the beach, you know, picking seaweed and fish guts out of his hair. Uh, He may have headed home uh, and thought that he'd escaped from this uh, job that God had asked him to do. We don't know. Uh, In either case, though, it must have seemed like Groundhog Day for Jonah. God was going to keep coming after him until he got it right. And in this verse, it's clear that Jonah gets a fresh start and a second chance to obey the Lord. He's given another go Because Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, is the God of second chances. That's a wonderful thing to know, isn't it? That even though Jonah has disobeyed, that he's failed, God graciously gives him another chance. And even if in the past we have failed, if we've sinned, we haven't loved others enough to tell them about Jesus and share the gospel with them, God always stands ready to give us another chance. God is unfailingly gracious. He gives Jonah a second chance and this time Jonah obeys. Uh, After his experience with the fish in chapter 2, it seems like he knows that he's got nowhere to go, that he can escape from God's presence or God's demands on him. God is going to have him preach to Nineveh either way and so Jonah figures it's probably just easiest to go with it. And so he's told in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. God says to Nineveh, go, uh, God says to Jonah rather, go to Nineveh and preach exactly what I tell you. Jonah has no leeway to change the message. He can't make it more appealing to the Ninevites, not that it seems like Jonah would want to. He's given no permission to cut it short. His message needs to be exactly what God tells him to preach. And that's the same for us, isn't it? We have no right to change God's message either. As tempting as it might be to tweak it so that it's a little bit more palatable, We have no room to censor or twist the bits of the Bible, the bits of the Gospel, that aren't politically correct in our culture. If we do, then actually it's not the Gospel that we proclaim anymore. See, if our message is centred around us, uh, something like God has a wonderful plan for your life, if it's centred around us and not what God has done through His Son, if it sounds more like a five-step plan to an easy and comfortable life rather than a call to repent and to trust in Jesus and fight sin through the power of the Holy Spirit, if that's what our message sounds like, then it's not actually the Gospel. Actually, it's just a bastardised Christian version of the self-help advice that people can get anywhere in our secular culture. 
If it's not God's word, then it is not powerful to save. And if that's what's on offer, then it's no wonder that in our culture people couldn't be bothered responding to the message. You, know, you can stay home and hear the same things in a TED talk on YouTube on Sunday morning. You get to sleep in. Why would people come to church with us? Why would they put their trust in the Lord Jesus? A self-help gospel isn't compelling. It's not a message that makes people sit up and take notice. It's not a message that demands a response from people. The true gospel, it demands a response. And the message that God gives to Jonah is definitely a message that makes Nineveh sit up and take notice. It's a very direct message. In Hebrew, it's just five words. Jonah preaches it just as he's been told. And the message is clear. Judgment is coming. You see that in verse 4. If we can get it on the slide. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, as much as we've given it to Jonah so far in the last couple of weeks, here you have to at least give him credit for his bravery. He's a foreigner walking into the capital of the most violent, depraved nation on earth and telling them that his God will overthrow them. Imagine strolling into Mosul at the height of ISIS's power. Mosul is where Nineveh was. Imagine strolling in there at the height of ISIS's, ISIS's power, right into the town square in front of the central mosque, and calling out that the Christian God is going to overthrow ISIS in 40 days. I think you could pretty reasonably expect that your head and your body wouldn't stay connected for very long after you start preaching. That's not the mission strategy you came up with on the plane, is it? But without any twisting, without any censoring, uh, Jonah faithfully calls out to God, uh, calls out to the Ninevites God's word of judgment against them. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And even though we're not in ISIS-controlled Mosul, I reckon we still feel scared about calling out about God's judgment. It's not a comfortable thing to talk about in our culture, isn't it? It's not politically correct. In Mosul, we might be killed, but the worst response here is to be called, you know, the worst thing that you can be called in our culture, an intolerant, hateful bigot. And so we've convinced ourselves that talking about sin and talking about punishment is more likely to turn people off than turn people back. But telling people that Jesus has come to save them is only compelling if they know what they need to be saved from. And so even at the risk of offending or upsetting people... We need to warn them of the danger that they're in. A genuine warning to people in danger isn't intolerant, it isn't hateful, it is an act of love. 
to keep the warning to ourselves to stay quiet is unloving. That's a cliched illustration, but no one will accuse a parent of being unloving to their kids if they yell at them as they're about to step on a highway. It's not hateful judgment on them for playing where they shouldn't. It's a loving concern for their safety, isn't it? How much greater danger are our friends in while they're cut off from God? It might be unpopular and uncomfortable to speak about hell, but no one spoke about it more or was more qualified to speak about it than Jesus himself. He repeatedly spoke about the place where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he tells us that he came and died to save us from it. Friends, if you feel awkward about talking to people about judgment, consider what it is to suffer under God's wrath forever and ever. To suffer it day and night, from one year to the next, from one age to another, a thousand ages to a thousand more, in wailing and groaning and gnashing of teeth, bodies full of torture and souls full of anguish without any possibility of relief, without any possibility of hiding from God or any possibility of diverting your mind from the pain. Think about how dreadful your despair would be in such torment, knowing with full assurance that you will never ever be delivered from it. To have no hope. Even if it's uncomfortable, it is helpful to hear the truth. And so we need to understand it and we need to persuade others to understand it as well. Uh, Let me be clear uh, in that and say I'm I'm not suggesting that we preach a a turn or burn style gospel. Uh, This passage doesn't mean that we should... head to Queen's Park after church and stand on the tables and shout about hell and judgment. What I mean is that the judgment of God has an essential place in our preaching alongside the love and mercy of God to us in Jesus. It's a necessary implication of the fact that Jesus is Lord. And so we mustn't leave it out. The apostles didn't. Uh, You see in the Apostles' preaching in the book of Acts, the heart of their preaching from uh, Peter to Stephen to Paul is the message that God had raised Jesus from the dead as king and so he was going to judge the world. And therefore, we need to repent. You know, often it takes a good amount of trust, I think, from our friends and our neighbours before they would be willing to hear that from us and discuss that with us. And we must never preach judgment from a position of moral superiority or condemnation. That's not our job. Uh, We must only ever speak of God's judgment through tears, uh, with compassion, as Paul himself did on many occasions. The lesson from Jonah is not that we should lead with judgment or that judgment is the only point of the Christian message, It's that judgment is coming and we need to warn people. 
Never forget, our whole city is drowning in a sea of God's wrath. And God has put us here to warn them about the danger that they're in. We're in the lifeboats. We have the life preservers to throw them. There are a thousand ways of doing that. There is only one thing that we can't do, and that is to do nothing. Jonah started by going to Nineveh and preaching about God's judgment. The gospel requires that we figure out ways to do it too, because to not do it is not loving. Now, given everything that we know about Nineveh, uh, that we know about Assyria, what sort of response would you expect for Jonah's message? Now, perhaps you know of uh, missionaries who have taken the gospel to unreached people groups, uh, people who have never heard about Jesus before and have been killed by the very people they're trying to preach to. You might know stories about people like Graham Staines or Jim Elliott. And I think Jonah would have expected a similar response from the Ninevites. But what Jonah gets is surprising. And Nineveh's response is so surprising, actually, that many modern-day scholars take this as evidence that the whole book is a work of fiction. Have a look at their response in verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, Jonah's message makes a splash. Against all odds, the people hear Jonah's message, they believe him, and they turn from their sin in repentance. It's a comprehensive response. The whole city, uh, from the greatest of them to the least, they repent in sackcloth and ashes, man, woman, and child. Jonah may have been surprised, but we shouldn't be. God's word always has great power, even with the worst of sinners. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Which is a great encouragement in evangelism, isn't it? If God's word has that effect on a wicked city, when it's preached by a rebellious prophet in a five-word message of judgment, then it can work in a city like ours with prayerful, enthusiastic, faithful evangelists like you. It brought Nineveh to repentant faith and we can tell that's the response God was looking for because of what he does later in verse 10. He relents from what he says he's going to do. He doesn't judge Nineveh at the end of 40 days. If we want God's mercy on us, if our friends want God's mercy, then we need to respond in the same way. We need to respond to his word with repentant faith. And the Ninevites actually give us a great example of what that looks like. Uh, See, they do four things in their repentant faith. Firstly, they believe God's word. Uh, That's how they respond in verse 5. They don't take Jonah's words as his wishful thinking, They hear Jonah's preaching and they believed God. 
Now, this is the kind of cognitive aspect of repentant faith. It's what happens when we sit down with an open Bible and God, by His Spirit, opens blind eyes of sceptical people to see His truth. They believe God's Word and then they humble themselves. Verse 5 and verse 6, if you've got your Bible in front of you as well. They declare a fast and put on sackcloth, uh, both signs of grief and humility and repentance. Even the king takes off his royal robes and he puts on sackcloth and sits in ashes. Uh, The dress code is a cultural expression of their genuine regret for what they've done. Their attitude has changed as part of their repentant faith. Uh, God doesn't just want superficial religiosity that says, you know, I'm going to try harder next time. The humility that comes from repentant faith admits some ugly truths. We've failed. We've sinned. We're guilty and we deserve punishment. Their dress code reveals that they've humbled themselves in this way. Third, they turn from their sin. The king issues a decree that already just formalises what's going on in the city and then he adds to it in verse 8. He says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Repentant faith results in changed behaviour. A genuine commitment to think and to act differently by the grace of God through the power of the Spirit. Turning away from the sin that's brought on us the judgment that we deserve. And then finally, they plead for God's mercy. Uh, That's in verse 8 and verse 9 too. Verse 8, let them call out mightily to God. And then verse 9, who knows, God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. See, they knew that God was under no obligation to show them mercy. And their prayers are no guarantee. God's not obligated to forgive them. And so they're not arrogant enough to presume They admit that they are reliant on God's mercy. That's not the case for us, is it? See, as Christians, we have a certainty that the Ninevites could only dream of. We know that God promises mercy to whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus. Unlike the Ninevites, we have in his word the wonderful promise that anyone who repents will be forgiven. We can be sure of it because he's given his son to die on our behalf. Jonah had promised that the Ninevites were going to be overthrown and in some ways they were, weren't they? But not in the ways that Jonah is expecting. The whole city is overthrown, turned upside down in repentant faith. And God responds in a surprising way. We see his response in verse 10, where he mercifully relents from his word of judgment. Have a look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. 
God's response, just like Nineveh's, is surprising. Maybe you're surprised, actually, by the fact that God would threaten judgment and condemnation in the first place. You know, when we hear non-Christian people talking about Christians, uh, often the accusation is that we're on about judgment and people going to hell, but Jesus, actually, he was cool with anything. Jesus loves people however they are, you know, live and let live. But God's judgment wouldn't be surprising to Jonah or Israel. Nineveh's barbarity makes it easy to see that God's judgment is actually a good thing. And anyone who has been badly sinned against and longs for justice, I think, can sympathise with them. It is a good thing that God will judge sin and wickedness and violence and evil. The real surprise is actually that God relents from his judgment and doesn't do the thing that he said he would. God has sent Jonah with a prophecy of judgment that's entirely appropriate for a people like the Ninevites. I reckon all of the other nations who are surrounded by them are cheering. They live under the threat of the Assyrian Empire. If Nineveh was destroyed, they could breathe a sigh of relief. And we should expect that a holy God, one who can't even look on sin, would be ready to punish Nineveh. But if you've been reading Jonah carefully, like we have, then it shouldn't be a surprise at all that God is quick to relent from destroying them. Remember back in chapter 1, we've seen that God is concerned with Nineveh's wickedness. He wants Jonah to go and preach his gospel there. And while Jonah is running away, what does God use it to do? to save a crew of pagan sailors. In chapter 2, he shows grace to his rebellious, disobedient prophet and Jonah's song finishes with his realisation that salvation belongs to the Lord. God is a God of salvation. By this stage in the story, we shouldn't be surprised that God loves to show mercy. And so when he sees the repentance of the Ninevites, he does exactly the thing Jonah was afraid that he would do all along. He withdrew his threat of punishment. God is wonderfully merciful. But if you've been paying attention to your Bible, actually, you might have felt maybe you'd hit a bit of a speed bump when you hear that God relents when he changes his mind. Hang on, you might think. Now, what's going on here? Why does God seem to change his mind? And if God changes his mind here, then actually, what's to say he won't change it back? Or that he won't change it about his great promises in Scripture? You know, the promise to forgive us when we trust in Jesus. Or that he won't just change his mind about us, about you or about me. The Bible is really reassuring here. The Bible shows us very clearly that God is immutable. As a word for the day, I'll see if you can work it into a sentence later. God is immutable. And that means that God doesn't change because he is perfect. 
Kids, if you listen to Colin Buchanan, people change, but God don't change at all. Who knows that song? Yeah. God is immutable. He doesn't change. He can't change. He is always reliable in his character, in his will and in his promises. If he changed, that would be a problem, wouldn't it? Either God is imperfect and he's changed to something better or he's changed from perfection to something less than perfection. Either way, if God changes, he would no longer be God. But the Bible tells us God is perfect and never changes. He's immutable and God's immutability means that we can trust him. We can trust all his promises especially the promise of the gospel. When he says that if we repent and we put our trust in him and he'll forgive us, then we have a rock-solid guarantee that he will. He won't retract the offer at a later stage. He won't add extra conditions to our salvation later on. He's the rock on which we can build our lives with 100% confidence. Does that mean, though, if God never changes his mind, if he's already made it up, then there's no point praying for mercy? There's no point praying for unbelievers? Again, this passage, I think, shows us that that's not at all the case. When we're told here that God changed his mind, we get to see God genuinely and responsively interacting with people. He gives his image bearers genuine moral agency in the way that we respond to him. And so when they repent, he keeps his promise to forgive them exactly like he says he will. We don't see that in the passage, but actually we see God talk about that elsewhere in the Bible. If you've got it open in front of you, turn your Bible back to the book of Jeremiah, back uh, back a few pages to chapter 18. Uh, Chapter 18, verse 7 and 8 say, and this is God speaking, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I'll pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. That's what God's done to Nineveh, isn't it? He's been completely faithful to his character as the merciful God, completely faithful to his promises. And so he holds back his judgment. He shows mercy to the 120,000 people who live in Nineveh and are facing his wrath. It would have been just and right for God to completely smite Nineveh, actually without any warning, but God shows his mercy by giving them a chance to repent. That judgment wasn't held back forever, though. Uh, Despite this generation turning back at Jonah's preaching, it seems that Nineveh's change of heart was short-lived. Within a generation, they'd gone back to their idolatrous and violent ways, and God's prophets, through the rest of the Bible, continue to proclaim their destruction. God's mercy doesn't give Nineveh a free pass. 
His delay in judgment doesn't mean their sin goes unpunished. And later generations of Ninevites will find that out. But if God wasn't patient in pouring out his judgment, then none of us would be here, would we? Thankfully, though, for these Ninevites and for us, there's another way. God's judgment will come. His immutability actually guarantees it. He is always against sin and that will never, ever change. But in his mercy, he's given us a window in which to repent. The story of Nineveh's repentance and God's merciful response is an encouragement to us to throw ourselves on him and receive his mercy. And he can offer that mercy to us because his justice has been fully satisfied by Jesus' work on the cross. Mercy and justice meet at the cross of Jesus. That eternal punishment, the hell that we deserve for our sin, is transferred to Jesus and mercy is held out for anyone who responds in repentant faith. If you are not yet a Christian, you have a window to repent. The most violent nation on the planet at that time repented straight away. They didn't wait till the 40 days were up. They admitted their sin and they turned away from it and begged God for mercy because of the the preaching of a disobedient prophet. And now one even greater than Jonah has come and Jesus has preached about God's mercy and he's taken God's judgment on himself on the cross and God has raised him from the dead and made him Lord and judge of all. He will come back and he'll bring his judgment with him. Now is the time for receiving his mercy. Make the most of that window that you've been given. Don't wait. And if you've already heeded the warning, if you've been delivered from God's judgment by trusting in Jesus, friends, don't forget that this whole city is drowning in God's wrath. Stop messing about and throw them a life preserver. It might be awkward to talk about. It might actually lose you some friends. But people are dying. And we have been given the words of eternal life. How much would you have to hate them not to share it? And how much rejoicing will there be when they hear it and repent? Friends, let's pray together and ask that they would. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that we are often reluctant evangelists like Jonah. And we ask that you would forgive us. Help us see clearly the terrible state that our world is in, sitting under your judgment and facing an eternity under your wrath. Thank you that you've provided a salvation for us in the Lord Jesus who took the judgment that we deserved on himself and gave us mercy and life. 
Father, we know that because you have made him king over all, he's coming back to judge. And so, Father, help us to warn people to flee from your wrath by running to you for mercy. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.